coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. So I don't expect to master everything and anything in a short space of time. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fall down. I'm going to ask the wrong questions. I'm okay with all of that because I see things as a, as a progression. And this week I might be new to it. Next week I'm a week into it. The education and the knowledge has grown. I think far too often people expect to be masters of it straight away and they're so frightened or put off from making errors or mistakes that actually they never move forward and it's just part of growing with the journey, growing yourself as well so that you're educating yourself along the way and I, I approach everything like that. It's okay to fall, it's okay to fail, it's okay to ask the daft and wrong questions because every day you've got to learn a little bit more. I'm Steve Guest. If you want to come and find me, ask me any questions or get in touch, LinkedIn is generally the best place. Find me, I spend a lot of my time there. I've really enjoyed being a guest today on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Steve Guest, elite recruitment specialist and author of Top Biller. Steve has been recruiting for 17 years. He's placed over 800 individuals into permanent roles in the UK. Podcast host of The Guest List with Steve Guest. Amazon best-selling author across multiple categories for Top Biller, The Life of a Recruiter. Globally, the highest reviewed recruitment book on Amazon. And also founder of the online recruitment training platform, the 12-week Recruitment Mastery Program. Steve is still recruiting, the doing, but also now mentoring, coaching, and teaching. We ask when did Steve realize he could do this? What attributes he sees in his kids that could make them recruiters also? Steve talks about the importance of being early for everything. What separates successful recruiters, such as organization consistency, integrity, and honesty? What pushed him into driving his book sales? Steve knows his why, and he embraces sharing his journey and giving value now. How fitting it was that Steve was guest number 200 for Sepper. It's been going for three years and seven months, since May 2019. But now it's time for a pause, for us to consolidate our learning. Thanks for being here, and remember, Sleep, eat, perform, repeat. Steve Guest, thanks so many for coming on. How are you, sir? An absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'm good. Say, yeah, a little bit cold. It seems the temperature seems to have dropped, but other than that, everything is, is good. Pretty fresh over here as well in Ireland. We're only saying this morning. It's freezing. It's really changed in the last week, but uh, yeah, yeah. we are giving out definitely a bit. on there. <laughs> We're all growing the facial hair for winter, right? I know. I put this down to laziness, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. It's one of them things that's so way down on the list of things to do that it just gets it gets longer, the beard gets fluffier, and I'm not sure the wife agrees with it, but it's here to stay at the moment. Steve, we were we were saying, um, Kira and I were having a conversation. We're like, geez, we wonder will he be on time? And I said, well, reading the book, this is a guy who's always on time. And for those listening, we spoke about this off air, but Steve being early for meetings is something that is a habit of yours. Why is that? And what is it about that? 
do you know what I think it is? One of my big anxieties in life, it sounds really ridiculous to, to the majority, but I worry about getting parking spaces. I worry about not being able to park. It sounds ridiculous, but it's always there. And I've had a, a whole lifetime of being 20, 30 minutes early for client meetings or meeting candidates. Um, I get on the kids' nerves because if I've taken them to out of school, activities we're always generally 15 20 minutes early they get really bored um even this week i took my my oldest to swimming and we were about 15 minutes early and he was basically doing acrobats in the front of the car feet on the ceiling because he was so bored and i'm like just chill it's 10 minutes just relax <laughs> but yeah it's me I, I don't like being rushed i don't like being ill-prepared or feeling like i've run into something that um you almost have that kind of initial panic that you've i don't know put someone else out because you're five ten minutes late or they've been sat around waiting for you and i don't ever want to be in that position i like that and i think we can actually use that a lot of time i'm similar i like to be early but sometimes it's almost a bit of an anxiety about being too early and not knowing what to do but you have a bit of a method about what's in the carriage yeah. as well <laughs> I think because it's it is just me and I accept it. I'm never or I'm I'm rarely late. And if I am late, it's down to traffic or things outside of my control. But I'll always keep books or lists of things to do. Sometimes it'd be client or candidate lists, so I know who I've got to call uh when I get there, um, when I'm sat in the car park. I've I've always got things so that I use the time wisely. It's not um, a habit where I'm just there for 20 minutes and I sit staring into space. I actually use the time well, but I'd just rather be there and, and not worry about being late or um, stuck on a motorway somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I think as long as you use the time properly, I think you can manage it. I know it's a thing. I know people take the mickey at me for it, but <laughs> I'd rather be that person than be the one tearing down the motorway because I'm going to be late for a meeting. What are, what are the other habits you have that maybe people take the mickey out of you or maybe they don't, but have, have uh, been successful? I think, I mean, I've, I've made a, a career in recruitment out of my habits, if I'm honest. I am meticulous in, in my planning and the way that my days are set up. I am an avid user of the calendar. If it's not booked into the calendar, then generally it won't get done or it will get missed. Um, I am the habitual person. If you need to find me, between seven and quarter past seven i'm on costa coffee down the road getting my morning coffee i'm generally in the office bang on time every morning um i tend to get in earlier than anyone else because i need that kind of 15 20 minutes just to get my head straight know what i'm going to do um and and set the plan out for the day um, um me, and, me and the other half we've been together 22 years this year and she's the complete opposite of me. She's the kind of, it uh, just rains chaos. Everything is done perfectly, but it's in a different kind of plan to me. Um, it's almost like the yin and yang. It's the complete opposite. But somewhere we meet in the middle and it works. Um, but if, I've get, if I get asked to do something and it's not in the plan, it takes me five or ten minutes to accept the fact that I've got to get it in there somewhere. Like, can you just drop this off on the way to work? Could you just drop the kids off? Or could you pick them up today and do this? And if it's not in the calendar, it causes havoc in my head. And I have to get, I kind of almost have to come around to the fact that actually it's not a big thing you're asking me to do. And I can definitely fit it in. 
Um, but I think it's just because I like things in a set way, in a set place. Um, and I do things in a very organised um, and methodical kind of manner. Um, and in my experience, it's my 17th year in recruitment. I would say 90, 95% of recruiters are the flamboyant, out there building relationships, very socially adept to um, being in big spaces with lots of groups of people. Um, and quite often they're not the most organised. I think me being the kind of qualified strategic buyer, spreadsheet savvy, borderline OCD, I almost bring something a little bit different, which is just that methodical approach. So I was thinking that when you said it, and that is the perception, uh, probably an ignorant perception I have of recruiters that they're very, they, they're very adaptable in a good way sometimes as well to their clients or people are trying to recruit their schedules. They're yep. also very spontaneous, but that has to come at the cost of a structured routine. So how do you manage to when you have to change it? Like you said, when that tension um, is there in yourself. I think when it comes to work, I mean, I, I do, obviously I, I still recruit. I run a recruitment business. Um, I do various other things. I have a podcast. I'm writing my third book. I'm married with two kids who do copious amounts of activities outside of school. So it's like a high five in the hallway when, when we get home to say who's taking who where and a logistical nightmare. And I think it just has to be planned for me. It has to be set in, in stone because I'd never get half of that done if I didn't have structure and organisation. Um, I've managed teams of recruiters at, at height. Um, I had 19 staff across two regions, so Manchester and Birmingham. Um, and I was reporting into a board of directors that were based in Watford. So I spent a lot of time on the road up and down the, the country. And I think if you didn't have that sort of organisation structure, I think you'd, you'd fall somewhere down the wayside at some point. Um, but having said all of that, most of the recruiters that I've recruited uh, that I've worked with generally are very kind of active, very outward, very um, good at, with momentum, making lots of calls, um, that flamboyant, confident nature. But quite often they'll leave a trail of destruction behind them or they won't know how they've had a good month or a, a bad month, what what has actually culminated in their results. And, and I always saw it as my job to try and find that element where they can start to understand a measure and then look to improve, which is always difficult because if you've got someone like that, you start telling them that they've got to record all their detail, record all their data, understand what numbers and ratios and stats they've got. They start to switch off and become a little bit bored because that's not what they want. And it's finding that kind of mid-level to get them a little bit more organised. Um, it, it kind of paints a picture. The first book, Top Bill of the Life of a Recruiter, towards the back of there, I give away a free month planner. And that month planner is something that I've built over years of doing what I do. I use it on a daily basis. Um, and I do think that is one of the things behind why the book has done so well, because people within recruitment crave structure. They crave order. And they're not quite sure how to do it or why they don't do it. Tell us, Steve, 17 years in the business, what was it like at the start, that first that first win? Can you take us back to that first big success when you went, you know what, this is for me, I'm on to it? Because we, we have young people listening to this that very well are probably dipping their toe into it. Yeah. What can it when can you get that realization that you're doing okay with this? 
I've almost got two answers to that. So my story didn't start off in a, I suppose, a really positive light. I was working as a buyer. I was negotiating multi-million pound frameworks. It was a stable job. I was earning a basic salary. My wife was in temp recruitment and she was doing really well. And I was seeing some of the gains that she was making, thinking this can't be more to life than this this buying stuff. And I went for an interview to recruit for purchasing staff. And I thought that would be the natural kind of move. And I was told that I didn't have the right personality traits, the character traits. I would never make it as a as a salesperson or a recruiter. Um, and I should go and look for something else. Um, and I went across to um, a business within the same brand and basically said, take me on and I'll, I'll prove them wrong. So I suppose I, I entered into recruitment on the basis that I wanted to prove the doubters wrong. That almost gives you the fuel to your fire because you've got something to do that is over and above just being successful. Um, I came into recruitment having uh, worked with salespeople that had consistently let me down for a good few years. And I think that, I suppose, gave me a foundation that my first, I don't know, month to six months was about making sure I solved the, the problems to the clients. Where's it fell down before? What's gone wrong? Why aren't you happy with the recruitment agency or the consultant you've dealt with? What can I do to be bigger and better than anyone else? And I just focused on the real basics of, I'll call you when I say I'm going to call. I'll come over and meet you. I'll give you honest market feedback. So if we're not finding candidates, we're not getting CVs, we're not selling the role properly, something's falling down in between, the market's giving a message back that we weren't expecting, I would feed that back. Because as a buyer, I always wanted honest feedback from the salespeople I dealt with. And one of the big problems at the time was most recruiters ran for the hills after a meeting. They didn't send CVs or they never contacted them again. So just in the basics really well was a success. Um, and then I just set about actually just dominating my market. So I knew I had to work harder than anyone else. It was 17 years ago, so there wasn't really any social media. So it was all about cold calls. It was about networking. It was about getting into the office half an hour earlier. It was about making sure that everybody knew who I was for the specific market and the niche that I was taken on to recruit for. Um we were given KPIs then, I still work too now. So I knew they worked um, and I just set about making sure I achieved them and nothing really stopped that. Um, I wasn't brutal in terms of pushing people into positions or selling something that wasn't there. I was just very honest in the fact that um, I worked hard and I worked harder than people around me. And I used the people around me to motivate me to be bigger and better. Um, I'm not sure if that's fully answered your question, but there's yeah, there's yeah. so many bits in between. As a consultant, um, I was one of the fastest trainees to get promoted, one of the fastest consultants to get promoted to senior. Um, I still hold the regional records, as far as I'm aware, that was set in, set in 2007, um, which was 17 perm placements in a four-week period in construction. Oh. Um, that's no easy feat. Um, the average perm consultant places between two and four people per month across all sectors and markets. Um, so that is, I suppose, the level that I'd set at the start in that 
I just wanted to be really good at what I did and set an example, perhaps the people that doubted the fact I could ever do it. Speaking to your rise and, and doing so, being so successful, so young, effective networking and networking to, with the right people, the right clients, but also people within the organization. Mm-hmm. Did you go about that strategically? Did you set a, a roadmap for yourself in order to how you can build these relationships that will make a difference for your, for your career? Yeah, I th- there's always a strategy to it. I always go into, like, I, I really lo- love this time of the year because it allows you to assess what you've done in the year you can go over the work that you've done how you've worked the stats and everything that you've um, delivered on and you can look to make those incremental gains and improvements for next year I love that and I love the fact that each year I'm trying to be a little bit better and a little bit bigger and, and achieve a little bit more and it doesn't have to be I suppose huge gains it's, it's little bits everywhere I think in terms of networking and um, building relationships and and markets, it was just always about honesty. It was about making sure that I delivered on what I said I was going to deliver on. There was strategy in the fact that because I'm so structured and organised, my first desk, I still recruit for commercial construction staff across the Western East Midlands. Um, the desk that I had at Hayes was commercial construction roles within the Birmingham postcoded areas, letters A to M in the alphabet. So it was really specific. It was really niche. But I wanted to get to the point where I knew everybody. I knew the one-man bands and I knew the big PLC companies. And if anybody moved, I knew what that meant in terms of the market, where the gaps were, where the vacancies were, where that person had gone to. Um, and it was about kind of moving with the market as that went. When I left Hayes in 2008, I left on the basis that I was going to a business where nobody did what I did. So in essence, my market grew. I had the whole of the UK. I could still do construction perm. My thought process there was, well, if I can build this and make this many placements with such a small market, imagine what you can do with the whole of the UK. Actually, in hindsight, it lessened the service. It diluted the service. I wasn't as good. I wasn't as quick. I wasn't as effective because you'd start placing roles in maybe Aberdeen or Portsmouth. And and you're all, it was all so sporadic that actually you couldn't manage the market well enough. And it probably took me six to 12 months to actually just go back to doing Western East Midlands and then focus on the fact that that was still a big increase in market. So I, I, I suppose you could say there was a certain strategy there. But there's all kind of parts in there. So I would deal with general contracting, but so many subcontract areas within construction, and it's a candidate-led market. I was seeing when I was getting CVs for candidates that I didn't know where I could place them, but they were still construction-related. I knew that I needed to spend some time to understand each subcontract area because each candidate that was coming through that I couldn't place was effectively a placement I wasn't making within a sector that I was managing. So you can then start to break that down into into bits. And if it was organised and then put into the diary, I would have a specific sales time within a day where I could focus on a specific area. And then you improve your ability to work with where the market is. Meticulous with planning. Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes I I see everything I do as a journey. 
So I don't expect to master everything and anything in a short space of time. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fall down. I'm going to send candidates that nobody wants to hire because it's a new sector or market that I haven't mastered yet. I'm going to ask the wrong questions. I'm okay with all of that because I see things as a, as a progression. And this week I might be new to it. Next week I'm a week into it. So the education and the knowledge has grown. I think far too often people expect to be masters of it straight away. And they're so frightened or put off from making errors or mistakes that actually they never move forward. And it's just part of growing with the journey, growing yourself as well so that you're educating yourself along the way. Um, and I, I approach everything like that. I, I'm, it's okay to fall. It's okay to fail. It's okay to ask the daft and wrong questions. Um because every day you've got to learn a little bit more. Steve, when you're getting into a sector or a market that maybe you don't know particularly mm. well, what would be your suggestions in and around that, you know, just even as a starting point? Yeah, I think if you've got an idea, so let's say, for example, you want to get into IT. I don't, I don't really know the IT market. I would look at the IT market as a whole, and you've obviously got to decide whether you're going to deal with white-collar management or perhaps the day-to-day office support or IT support type roles. I would start off in a small geographical area um, and I might pick a certain area within IT that I'd like to master because I think you can you can almost pick too big and there's almost that sense of overwhelm that there's just too much, there's too much to deal with, there's too much knowledge to get and you're never going to master it. And I think there's a book I read by Daniel Priestley called The Key Person of Influence. I read it some years ago. Daniel Priestley, I've met, he's appeared on my podcast as well. And I actually went down when I wrote my second book to give him a copy to say it actually came from meeting him some years ago. He wrote in there key, uh, a key construction person of influence in the front page of the book. And I suppose that's where you go out. So if you were looking at starting a new market, the idea is you want to become that key person of influence. So that person that when a client needs to hire someone, they immediately think you. When a candidate's looking for a role, they immediately think you. So you've got to be specific enough for people to align that you are the person they need to speak to. And you need to be knowledgeable and valuable enough in that space for that for you to be that first person that they think of. You're never going to do that if the market's too big. And I think you then build on it once you've mastered an area. What I think is very interesting, I hope you don't mind me saying you're brave in what you do in terms of taking on a career and just going for it, but you match it with such hard work and meticulous planning and strategy that even when you're stepping outside the comfort zone, which we speak about a lot about, you almost combat any sort of tension from that by your knowledge acquisition and just trying to look forward and say, okay, I can learn from what I'm doing and I'm going to get incrementally better. Yep. That's, that was, has been really um, fruitful for you in recruitment, but also within writing. So you've, you're on your third book now. What was it like making the transition from being looking at recruitment, looking at the sectors to now being an author? Yeah, I think it, it was almost um, a, a stepping stone. So I'd worked with a company for 11 years and um, we've got a young family. We've got two boys at the time. They would, would have been, what, four and eight. And, and I knew that we were going to, my wife and I, we're going to work for ourselves and, and basically look to set up. The business i wanted something that 
created or differentiated me from other recruiters. I think at the time there was probably six or seven recruitment books available and they're all very textbook um, heavy. I bought them all. You try and read them. You get to, I don't know, second or third chapter. You think, oh, my God, this is hard work. Um, so I wanted to write something that that was all, I suppose, more of a story. Um, and it kept your interest. And it was relatively lighthearted, but it offered value. But I also wanted a book that empowered and motivated, perhaps that one that doesn't quite fit into the office, the one that doesn't want to go and gong the bell or ring the bell because they've made a placement. They actually just work hard in the background and do what is expected of them, if not a little bit more. Um, I think the transition was I had a message that I wanted to give and inspire in that actually you could be the high C on a disc profile, that spreadsheet, um, unassuming person that wants to prove the doubters wrong and still be successful. What I mean, I do quite a lot of promotions with the books and a lot of advertising, and, and thankfully a lot of the readers have done that for me as well, which has helped the book do, do so well. But what a lot of people don't see is the, the messages that I get, the direct emails where recruiters have messaged to say that I've changed their life I've changed their thought process I've motivated them and they're skipping into work on a Monday because they've never quite fitted in but now they feel inspired to accept who they are accept their um, own abilities to actually go and prove everyone else wrong that's the best bit for me and and that's never put out there I never really highlight those because they're personal and private messages and they're sent on direct message for a reason. <laughs> it's mm. not for anyone else. And I think I sat in a seminar. Um, I'd probably just started to write Top Biller. So this would have been maybe 2018. Um, and there's about 70, 80 people in the room. The person running the seminar said, how many of you in this room wrote a book? And there's about eight hands went up. And he said, keep the hands up if you've sold more than 50 copies. And all the hands went down. And I was sat there thinking, 50 copies. At the time, I was getting up at half five to get to the office to write for an hour before the consultants came in. And, and for me to have that kind of 20, 30 minutes to plan my day as well. So it wasn't for the faint hearted. It was early. It was dark. It was wet most mornings. It was pretty grim. Um, and part of me was thinking, oh, do you know what? 50 copies. It's probably not even worth worth the effort. And then a switch in the back of my head was saying, well, no, actually, if you sell 51, you're the best person in that room. So crack on. And and I think I kind of face everything like that. I think I owe a lot to perhaps COVID and the pandemic for the book doing well. I think there was a lot of recruiters on furlough. There was lots of people at home that probably needed something to do and perhaps fancied a little bit of education or a bit of light-hearted reading. Mm. I did quite a lot of promotions and marketing during that time and giveaways. Um, and it's now what it's the highest reviewed recruitment book on Amazon in the world. 16,000 copies across 60 odd countries. It's ridiculous considering where I was sat, where I almost didn't write it because of the fear of selling less than 50 copies. Steve, now where you're at in terms of, obviously, that's just amazing. And I've read the book, obviously, and that's where <laughs> I was like, I am going to DM him. Um, doing and the work that you're still doing versus coaching, mentoring. You know, you've got your online course, you've got your program, you've yeah. got your book, and you're teaching people through that. 
Yeah. What's the what's the balance between those two worlds now in terms of education coaching and still yeah. doing what you've done for a high level? I think the the coaching came out of a LinkedIn post I put during COVID and the pandemic. And I said I was going to clear out my week because there was lots of people feeling really insecure and worried and nervous and not sure what was around the corner. And I said, I'm going to clear out my week. If anyone wanted to have a Zoom chat, 30 minutes, we talk through the what's happening, what's going wrong, where you might need some help. Um, we can have a laugh, a, chant, a chat, a rant, a cry, whatever you need. And if I'm honest, I didn't think it'd be that many people. I thought it'd be ex-colleagues or friends that would book in for a bit of a laugh and a joke. It ended up being 62 recruiters and it was global. I didn't know any of the 62. I was talking to recruiters in Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Africa, South Africa, Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand. It was ridiculous. Um, but really kind of humbling as well to go through that week. What I realised at the end of it was all the problems, all the hurdles recruiters face are no different wherever you sit on the planet. Um, and that's where the training programme kind of was born out of. Because I'm a note taker, because I'm a detailed person, because I've recruited, mentored, coached consultants across the last 16, 17 years, it kind of made sense to create a, an online program. I wanted something that was accessible. Um, I think the balance between the two, I still recruit, I still do the day-to-day -day recruitment. Um, we're now up to five staff here in, in our recruitment business. Um, last year, I did four launches. Uh, sorry, this year, sorry, four launches of the programme, one per quarter. Um, and because most of the learning is online and recorded videos, I jump in and do um, a live Zoom session twice, a, um, sorry, once every fortnight. Um, and it's open to anyone, people that initially did the programme in 2020 can come along up till the new mentees that come through. Um, so I would say majority of my time is still spent recruiting. Um, the programme, it works. It's made a difference to a lot of people around the world. Whether that balance will shift, I don't know. I think time will tell. Um, it works. It functions. I enjoy doing it. Initially, it was set up because when I left working with Fast Track, I had 19 staff and then went to having nothing. <laughs> mm. And it's difficult. I, I struggled because I wasn't accountable to anyone. Um, I wasn't able to necessarily add any value to anyone or inspire or motivate anyone to to achieve more so i enjoyed the program because it kept that kind of going and i got to understand how different cultures and different recruits around the world viewed things and things they could or couldn't do certainly within personal branding was always a, a good subject so i don't know i mean the business is growing here that obviously takes up time so we will see i suppose we're getting a sense that through this conversation, you're very present. You're very here with the, the conversations ongoing. When I'm planning or looking for things, I often get into the mode of looking at the calendar. It's already, but then I also almost when I'm doing something, think back to the calendar, what's next, what's ahead, what do I have later on? Do you ever face that tension? And if you do, how do you overcome it? Yeah, I think it's like anything, isn't it? I think whenever you get to that point where you feel a sense of overwhelm or you're not quite sure how to, to react or deal with something. I think I've become really good at breaking things down into smaller elements. 
and and I just keep it really basic. So it's things like I, I have a I set a 10-year financial freedom plan when I was 35. I'm 43. Now I'm 44 in February next year. So I'm nearly nine years into that plan. Am I going to achieve financial freedom? Maybe not. I won't be far off. Am I nine years better off than when I started it? Massively. The the gains that I've achieved over that amount of time are huge. Would I have achieved any of that if I didn't set the initial plan up in the first place? No, no chance. And I think I always set things up. So 10-year plan, had a five-year plan, three-year plan, two-year plan, 12-month plan, six-month plan, quarterly plan, week plan, day plan. It sounds a lot, a lot of work, but it's actually not. I just, I'm a firm believer of having huge goals, huge ambitions, huge plans, and then working backwards and thinking, okay, how does that look in the next plan? How does that look in this one? How do I get there? And what you then start to do is you create that first initial step. And that's all it is. And then it's about repeating that step, getting to the end of the year, thinking how I can improve that first step. And it becomes bigger and, and better. I think it's just when things almost feel too big, or perhaps I don't understand how I'm going to get there. I always think, well, how am I going to break that down? It was the same as a buyer. Uh, I'm a qualified buyer, so we had to go through various stages to understand. One of my big contracts that I um, purchased was gunmetal fittings that joined pipework together underground for um, a, a utility. And I had to break down the manufactured cost of a gunmetal fitting back to its raw material costs before it's shipped. That's a lot of detail. But if I said to you, you need to understand the price of that fitting, you might suddenly think, well, how, how am I ever going to know that? You just break it down into its elements and then you work out how you're going to achieve certain things along the way. Steve, you were saying two kids, right? Yeah. yeah. Same. Um, two's yeah. enough. <laughs> I was going to say that. For me, anyway. For me, anyway. Come on. If you get two's yeah. enough, man. Yeah. Um, is there something you could you'd see in your children? I'm a physio, right? Physiotherapist. So when I look at my five-year-old boy and I see him, what's that, daddy, when he's pointing at a bone in the skeleton? I go, good man. Yeah. And I get <laughs> yeah, a bit yeah. of pride. Yeah. And is there something you see in your children and you kind of go, oh, he's got a little bit of that in there. There's a yeah. bit of recruitment. What is it maybe about <laughs> your children or someone else that, that makes you think that, oh, yeah, it's rubbed off yeah. a little bit here? My um, my two boys, Ethan and Hugo. So Ethan's the oldest, he's 10. Hugo's the six-year-old. Hugo is me. He's the borderline OCD, doesn't like huge groups of people, will disappear into a quiet room, likes reading. He's academic. He works hard at school. Ethan is my wife, Emma, to a T. He is your salesman. He's the confident, can hold a conversation with absolutely anyone. Um, and he gets bored really quickly and he wants to go off and be active and go and do things. We had, um, I was having a conversation with Ethan. It's actually one of my podcast episodes because I was explaining a few things. Um, I don't know it was like holidays or expensive stuff. It might have been buying um, a car or something. He's just got into karting. And uh, I was talking to him about, well, it's expensive. And it's like the other. And he went, Dad, do you know what? He goes, We'll always find a way. And just that moment, I was like, that is it. 
like the first book I ever read, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Most entrepreneurial people have read it and, and get it. It was always about asking the right questions. How are we going to afford it? Not we can't afford it or we're never going to get there. It's how do we do it? What do we do? How do we get there? And just from, I think, repeating those sorts of conversations, Ethan's at a point where he gets it. It's about finding a solution. And to, to add to that, I had a, a consultant that was part of that 62 Zoom video two, two and a half years ago. And um, I've got to get this right because I think the last time I said he, I think he lives Singapore. Pretty sure it's Singapore. He messaged me via LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago and just said, um, thanks so much for putting that episode of your podcast out where you're having that conversation with your boy. I was in a position where um, I'd been given a, a, an opportunity to do something and I was struggling in my own, own head to get it done. And because I heard that it should be, we'll find a way. He says, I now have an extra revenue stream that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't listened to what your son had said. Well, well. Amazing. So, yeah, I would say Hugo, Hugo will be like me growing up through school. He will work hard. He will get good academic grades. Um, and there's, that's no pressure from, from us. That's just he loves it, he enjoys it. Um, Ethan will be the salesperson. And I think if they take anything from the journey I've had, it's just the fact that it's okay to, to fail. It's okay to fall on your face. It's okay to take risks as long as it's a managed risk. And you're doing it for the right reasons. I think if they take that, I think they'll be and have successful lives and careers. Sounds like they will anyway, definitely. Just speaking to that as well, um, taking risks. When you're working with people and trying to place them, sometimes it is a risk for them to make a move or they may feel like it is. And trust is a big element. How do you convey trust or build that rapport and trust with the individual to say, no, I've done the work, I've, I've knowledge in this area, and I'm pretty sure yeah. this is going to be a good move for you? Yeah. Um, I think it's, again, it comes back to integrity and honesty. And because I've got a lot of experience with the companies, the clients, the contractors that I work with, and people in general, I see recruitment as a service deliverable. So what I do is for the benefit of the candidate or the benefit of the client. It's not for me to make more placements, although that is a direct result. It's about making sure I look to what I class as package every candidate and package every vacancy. And by that, I mean, I want the client to meet three people and I want the candidate to go and have three interviews for potential roles. That's the basic minimum that I strive for. And that's so that the candidate can make a considered choice as to what best suits them. And I can offer advice along the way to say what the market says, what my experience of working with them over a long period of time is. And that could be client and company. My idea and thought process is to make sure that I give the candidate the best opportunity to pick the best thing for them. And from a client is to pick the best candidate that suits the role um, having benchmarked against others. If you get an offer from a client and an acceptance from a candidate and you've done those things, in theory, you've got a happy client, happy candidate that's picked it from a variety of choices, happier client, happier candidate, longer term placement. That's the theory. It doesn't always happen like that. As we all know, people can be random at the best of times, but that's how I approach every single vacancy and every single candidate. It doesn't matter whether you're a graduate or a chief exec or an MD. That is the aim. 
I don't push anyone. I don't, um, I certainly don't lie. I don't um, paint a picture that's all rosy. I will be honest um, and we will chat through positions and companies, expectations and thoughts. Um, and I treat people how they deserve to be treated. Uh, ultimately, we're here to offer a service. I'm not here to make up anyone's mind for them. I'm here to offer advice and support and help and hopefully get them the role that they've wanted. Lots of exciting things coming up. Um, what's really, you know, you're saying this is the this is that point of the year when you're kind of planning and looking back as to what went well and projecting into yeah. next year. What's it look like, you know, coming into Christmas and 2023 for you, Steve? You know, I just love it. Uh, anything that involves a spreadsheet. Sounds, like, <laughs> sounds really sad, doesn't that's it? That's the clip. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what, though? I think I am very much about investment for the future it's about expanding it's about um creating wealth and ensuring that my kids have opportunities and choice later on in life so that's the selfish element of this time of year but we also sit down and we plan family things um what we're going to go and do what we're going to do that's exciting what we're going to change like i've committed to doing my spanish gcse which actually i've put off another year because i'm struggling to fit that in um, but it could be things like just going away or going to visit a new place. It might be just doing something different. Um, one year in the compound effect by Darren Hardy, I think he says something about he buys his wife flowers every month. So I committed to that. Again, I loved it at the time, but then I think she was getting towards the end. She said, can I just have the cash instead? <laughs> um, I, should, I, I get excited because I want to go into every year with new things to aim for. And that could be health. It could be making sure I stick to the gym three times a week. It could be a new thing that I'm looking to do to ensure that I advance from a personal perspective as much as a business perspective. If I can get people around me on the same sort of wavelength and they want to do the same things and they want to um, be bigger and better, more motivated, achieve more, go off and do exciting things. As an office, it's exciting. I want to do things like go to, I don't know, track days, go to Wimbledon, do all the, the bits that you might not necessarily do on an individual basis. But actually, as a collective group, it becomes really exciting and it motivates you to achieve more. Thanks for everything so far, all the insights. We have one more question to ask you. Um, yeah. It's one we ask everybody who comes on the show. This will be episode number 200, so that is 200 questions. Of 200 times, you know, yeah. top, top dinner coming, yeah. So the question to you, Steve, is what does high performance mean to you? That's a big question. High performance for me is working at a level that is... Um, above the expectation a lot of us and i've seen it time and time again where individuals will say oh, i'll do that tomorrow if it's a task you can do now you get it done and it's not about or, or leaving it up for question i think it's about getting the job done and i get asked a lot of the time i don't know how you fit it all in how do you just how do you just get in you, you you hear it spoken about everyone has the same 24 hours in a day and yet certain people achieve so much more i don't even put myself in the, in the top bracket for achieving particularly much more than anyone else it's just i'm so motivated to make sure i get things done that they just get done and they don't get left to tomorrow if you've got kpis to achieve just stop 
whinging about and just get, just get <laughs> we will always just kind of do that self-preservation and find things to stop us from doing something and then we moan about the fact we didn't achieve what we thought we would achieve just keep on Steve Gass, thanks very much for joining us today. What I'd say is as you're building and thinking about what to do next year and consider coming to Dublin as, as our guest, excuse the pun, as oh, add, add that to the list. It would be cool to hang out. Definitely. And Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan. <laughs>